Well, today we're continuing on in our brief series, really looking at Matthew chapter 10. These are post-Pentecost passages of scripture in which, at least over the last few weeks, Jesus has really been describing the mission that his church is sent to go on as they proclaim the gospel to the world. Uh, If you remember, last week we dealt with sort of the danger that the mission had for the disciples, and yet what Jesus promised would be the comfort that they would have as they went out to the world. This week he's going to conclude the passage, but it's not as much even going to be about the mission per se, although that's certainly involved, as it is going to be about, well, just what it means to actually be his disciples, to follow in his footsteps. And so with that, by way of brief introduction, why don't we pause for a word of prayer and then we'll get into today's message. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word here today. Your words are life. They are light to our path. And yet, the words that we have before us today are hard words. They're not easy for us to hear, as we'll see. But again, all your words are light and life. So preach through my very imperfect and feeble lips why we need to hear these words and ultimately how we might apply them to our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A little while back, uh, some of you might remember a documentary series that was released on Netflix. Where else these days? And no, I'm not talking about Tiger King, although yes, I did shamefully watch all of the episodes. No, I'm talking about a documentary that was probably a little bit more substantive and a little less sensational, although maybe only a little less, called uh, Wild Wild Country. And what the series centered around was really a sort of cult-like commune that called themselves the Rajneeses. And it was basically a large commune located outside a small town in Oregon back in the 80s. And seemingly overnight, what made this cult or this commune so fascinating to the outside world was overnight, this cult brought a gigantic or bought a gigantic piece of land and then filled it with a gigantic group of people. It literally drew in thousands to come live within its territory. And within, it seemed, moments, they took this empty plot of land and they were able to build massive infrastructure and homes and all sorts of other things. And so part of what the documentary details is the tension that this brought out between the locals in the small town and all of a sudden this gigantic commune living there. But also what you do see as you go through the documentary is you do sort of learn what could possibly draw so many thousands of people to join this cult. Now, as with any cult, there's probably a good number of things that might draw people, but certainly one of the major appeals was the leader's message. You see, the message that the leader had was a different one than what many coming from his sort of religious spectrum taught. It was not the same. The leader went by the title Osho, and he was sort of like a Hindu yogi, very mystical, you know, new age type teaching. But, but he taught that one could at one and the same time be enlightened, 
you know, have the mystical experiences that come with sort of enlightenment, while at the same time having all of the goodies that life can offer us. This was different. This was not typical of the, the message within Hinduism or the various other schools of thought back in India where he had come from. This separated him, and of course, this was very appealing to many people because people wanted the spirituality, but they didn't want to go through, well, the inevitable suffering that most religious programs call you to. So, this mystical leader drove around in Rolls Royces, and when he would get out to speak somewhere or to be present somewhere, he would walk in on red carpets. He had jewelry and fat stacks of money all around him, and of course, there was vast amounts of sexual liberation all over the commune to be had by all. All, he said, to attain enlightenment. So, to become his follower, he really combined what human beings kind of naturally want. Sure, we like a little spirituality, we like having a mystical experience, but also we like having the stuff, we like having the comforts that come with life. It makes sense that at least inevitably it would grow large and you have to watch the rest of the documentary series to see how that all ends. But I'm not here to talk to you about the documentary today. I'm just here to use it as an illustration because it does make sense. If I think about it from a purely natural perspective, when I think how one might try to sell a religion to people, well, this would seem to be the, the way to do it today. As we conclude Matthew chapter 10, we might expect to see Jesus do a little selling of his own in order to get as many followers as he could to keep on going down the path with him. It only makes sense. It's what we're used to. So what, what could maybe the fringe benefits be of going with Jesus? What might he try and sell his disciples on? Well, I, I suppose it would make sense if he made promises to them that if they did follow him, that they would have complete and total relational harmony. Right? I mean, that would make sense. Certainly one might expect to hear something like this, considering that the angels declared at Jesus' birth that he was uh, bringing peace to men. Uh, you might even consider that being the case because his title, after all, according to the prophet Isaiah, is the Prince of Peace. Maybe it is the fact that when Jesus calls a man, he calls a man to follow him, but also calls him to live in relational harmony in peace. And this would be appealing, right? I mean, we spend hours and hours in therapy and spend millions and millions of dollars for the purpose, to some extent, of achieving that kind of thing in our lives. We want that kind of thing in our lives. We want those who we are closest to to be at peace with us and to live in intimacy together. So it makes sense. If Jesus is trying to make discipleship more attractive, that he would at least be able to offer that reality. But unfortunately, to our surprise, Jesus begins our passage telling his disciples 
they ought not be surprised when the opposite happens. He says in verse 34, the beginning of our text, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. No getting around it, folks. These are tough words of Jesus. And therefore need some explanation. Obviously, when we hear these words, we first wonder how they can be reconciled with what we just noted about Jesus being the Prince of Peace. I mean, he actually says in this text that he has come to set a man against his father, etc., etc., etc. So to reconcile the seeming discrepancy, I think the way we need to hear these words, well, is always with Scripture in context. Turns out these words of Jesus are remarkably similar to the words of the prophet Micah found in his book in the seventh chapter. There Micah, as the mouthpiece of God to the people of God, is lamenting the people of God's fall into lawlessness and unfaithfulness. He describes the society this way, beginning in verse 5 of Micah 7. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. In other words, your, your wife. Don't even tell her secrets. You're not safe to do so. Verse 6. For the son treats the father with contempt. The, da the daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. End quote. Here Micah notes the reality of human fallenness. He tells his hearers not to put their ultimate trust in any human relationship, even the most intimate relationships we have. Why? Because he knows human beings, to some degree or another, will always end up letting each other down. Will fail us, We'll fail each other. So then what are we to trust, Micah? He concludes the passage this way in verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. You see, the point that Jesus is getting across is not that it would be his preference to sort of set us against our families to bring relational dysfunction and strife. I mean, that would frankly be a breaking of the command to honor our parents. It's not as if he wants that to happen, but that in fact he knows that by one simple allegiance to him that it can happen. It's great if it doesn't, but don't be surprised if it does Either, dear disciple, Jesus says. The point is, Jesus is not selling a religion to his disciples that refuses to hold back what may come upon them. Indeed, this sort of division did happen in the first century, and it still happens today. 
I have personally known people that were ostracized by their families when they became Christians. It simply is a fact in some places around the world today that to become a Christian can mean a death sentence even carried out by the members of your own family. If you don't believe me, ask some of our international missionaries in certain spots around the world. So yes, Jesus says, if, if you're following me first, well, I got... I got to warn you, there could be some strife coming your way in the midst of even those closest to you. Well, all right. If following Jesus doesn't necessarily lead to relational harmony, well, perhaps then it leads at least to personal comfort. I mean, hopefully. I mean, again, if Jesus was, was trying to sort of sell uh, a religion, sell people on being a disciple of his, it would make a whole lot of sense that, okay, if I can't guarantee you the relational stuff that everybody's going to like that you're following me, let me tell you, I have got a lot of luxury awaiting you. I've got a lot of relaxation and personal comfort that you can get out of this deal. Sure, 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 there might be tension. You come with me, though. And I'll make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. You follow me, gang, and I'll give you power like you've never imagined. You follow me, and your days will be filled with ease. That message seems to have appeal to me. I mean, I like comfort. I really like comfort. I complain really easily when I don't got it. That makes sense. And isn't that what all the advertisers are trying to sell us on all the time anyway? The good life? If we just have this or just have that, then we'll finally have achieved something of what is presented to us as the good life, comfort, and ease, and luxury. Yes, 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 give me the money. But again, probably a little bit to the discomfort of his disciples, Jesus doesn't go there either. He says in verse 38, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Ugh. Instead of at least giving us the promise of luxury, Jesus gives us the most extreme picture around of the struggle that we can expect in our own personal lives. And no one knew this more than the disciples at the time. I mean, the image was very clear to them. They knew exactly what he meant. They had no doubt seen convicted criminals carrying their crossbeam up to the hill where they would be pinned on that cross and die a painful, agonizing death, usually over a number of days, eventually suffocating to death. They knew the horrors of the imagery Jesus was mentioning. Jesus says to his disciples, far from me promising you an easy life, a comfort-filled life, I am offering you death. I'm telling you that what it's like to be my disciple is a constant dying to yourself. In other words, Jesus is preaching precisely the opposite message of hedonism. Now, just as some want 
the promise of a life filled with comfort and ease, I know enough about you all and about human beings in general that some of you, when hearing that language of death, actually find that appealing too. Because you're the kind of person that likes to be challenged, that likes hard work, that finds joy in the grind. And so some of you, when you hear Jesus say, pick up your cross, here it is, work hard, get some, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, go for it, don't stop. But friends, that isn't what Jesus is saying either. In fact, Jesus is saying, Precisely the opposite of that as well. He is saying you have nothing to contribute at all to this game. He is taking away all your efforts at saving yourself because again, he is calling his disciples to die. Well, what a fun message you're giving us today, Pastor Eric. Thank you so much. Well, don't blame me. These are the words of your Lord. Take it up with him. He can understand. He can deal with it. Take it up with him. But I'm not done yet. I'm not done. I know so far Jesus has told us that relationships will not necessarily be improved by following him, nor that we will have personal comfort. So then is it just a life in which we can expect constant rejection all the time? Well... No. I mean, so there is a little good news at the end of the passage. Jesus ends with at least a little note of hope. He says, verse 40, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, he's speaking about his disciples, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In other words, Jesus does assure his disciples of a couple of things that, again, he's reiterating, you're going under the authority and banner of my name, so you, you do have some authority in your life as disciples and missionaries on my behalf. Well, that's pretty cool. And along with that, he actually says, well, you know, there will be some people that help you out along the way. They'll give you things like a cup of cold water and show you a little hospitality. I gotta be honest with you. As nice as it is to experience some hospitality, I'm still not sure, based on what we've read so far, that this is worth it. If I'm just doing a cost benefit analysis of what we've read thus far, I'm hearing that I am staking my life, my entire life, the rest of my days lived out on this planet on following Jesus and what I'm promised in return is the possibility of familial strife and incredible discomfort, dying to myself, and what I'll get is a cup of cold water from time to time. It doesn't seem like it's worth it. 
So what? Should we just go home and wallow in our misery? Because this life as a disciple seems way too hard for not too much payoff? Well, no. And the reason why is because I haven't told you everything Jesus has to say in this passage. I'll admit it. I have purposely left out one verse. Because even as I wanted to show you all the things that Jesus says we can expect that are hard, I wanted you to be brought to a place to see how it could possibly be worth enduring these things. Verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, now we've just heard something that starts to put a little bit of this into perspective. Yes, Jesus says, I am calling you on to a place, well, I'm calling you to, to put more hope in me than even the most intimate relationships you have. True. Yes, Jesus says, far from promising you a life of ease and comfort, I'm calling you to die to yourself and your natural ideas about saving yourself. Yes, true, but here's what I have to give you. Real life. Meaningful life. Eternal life. Yes, you lose the old life you were looking to for satisfaction and comfort. Yes, the idols that you had placed your hope in, the relationships you had placed your hope in, yes, you're not going to be aligned with them ultimately anymore. Yes, that's true. But that inevitably leads to death anyway. Come follow me and you'll live forever. Come with me because I'm actually going to take up your cross for you and thus declare you to be forgiven and righteous in the sight of God. Come with me and believe it or not, I have the power to restore the relationships that you thought were torn apart and renew them to be even stronger. So we come to a passage like this with all these hard words and we see all the strife that's promised us and we sort of say, well, what does this all look like? And I want to show you in as tangible a way as I can what I think this ultimately ends up looking like in our lives as disciples of Jesus. Jesus comes to us like he did his disciples that day and he says, I, I do want you, I do want you to Put your ultimate trust in me. And so I, I want you to look at your life and I want you to give it all over. I want you to give it all over. And you say, well, what, what kinds of things do you need? And he said, well, you know, why, why, don't, we, why don't we start with your money? It's like, well, I, I, I don't have a ton. I don't have a, I don't have a ton of money in here, but I mean, I, you really want all of it? Yeah, I, I want all of it. <sighs> okay, if this is what it means to be a follower of you, okay, you have it. What else do you want? 
well, what do you, what do, you do for work, Eric? Well, I'm a pastor. I'm going to need, I'm going to need that too. You want, you want the church? Well, it's mine. It's, it's always been mine. Um, so yeah, it's mine. Hand it over. <sighs> well, this is my church keys. But it's also got my house key on that. Go ahead and throw that in there too. All right. What, what else? I've given you my house. I've given you my wallet. I've given you my church, my job, my living. Well, you, you've got a beautiful wife and some kids, right? Yeah, I do. Uh, why don't you, why don't you uh, give her to me too? Because she's also mine. You want my family? You want, you want my, my family, like all of them? You want my, my wife and my kids and my parents and my brother and my friends and you want everything? Yes, I, I, I want it all. When I, when I said you're gonna have to die to yourself, I, 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 that's what I mean, that's what I mean. Well then what else is left, Jesus? You've taken everything from me. Like I said, I want you, I want your life. Okay. You, you've got it. And then something interesting happens. When Jesus sort of strips us away of all the things that we look to for our comfort and our ease and our hope and our security, and we're only left being able to look to him for the hope and security we need, we're only left with faith that reaches out to him, crying out for mercy and forgiveness of our sins. Well, well, then something interesting happens. Because Jesus promises to restore that which has been fallen. He promises to redeem that which has been rotted away. And so as my life is given over, Jesus says, here's your life back. And by the way, just remember, it's mine. And, and, when, and then he, he hands my wife back and he says, remember, she's mine. And he hands my kids back and he says, remember, they're mine. And the church, it's mine. But I'll let you be its pastor. And the house, it's mine. And the money is mine. All of it is mine. Remember, it's mine Remember your mind, and all these things can be used for far more good. And all these things can be served for far more good than they ever could have before. Because I have redeemed all these things. And now, they're not what you look to for hope. Because they never could do it for you anyway. They're just gifts I've given you to enjoy for the rest of your life as you follow me. 
And ultimately, that will culminate in eternal life forever and ever. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you that ultimately, even though, Jesus, you call us to die to ourselves, and ultimately you warn us that there will be strife in relationships, that ultimately, even as we acknowledge that in our following you, that you do not leave us bereft of these things. That on top of the eternal life that you have won for us, Jesus, that because you're so generous and so good to us, you give these things back to us oftentimes far better than we ever could have had them before. So help us to willfully, by the power of your Spirit, hand these things over in repentance and trust. May you empower us by your Spirit to walk in such a way. And now we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.